0: Welcome to the global edition of our NetGroup Investments Quarterly Highlights, where we profile some of the interesting takeouts from our recent fund manager workshop with our global best of breed managers. To hear the full fund manager presentation or for more information on our funds, visit NetGroupinvestments.com. In this episode, we question whether global logistical properties are still an attractive way for investors to benefit from. From the growth in e-commerce we look at which four global stocks every investor should have a view on whether the us's 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus program will lead to inflation and where to invest in expensive global equity markets we finish off by talking about an unusual construction company that is positioned for growth as developed nations begin to unleash a flood of spending on infrastructure projects Logistical property has been one of the standout performers in the global listed property sector as consumers have migrated to e-commerce shopping platforms during COVID. This has increased the demand for specialized warehousing space and significant construction and development has followed. We asked Gillian Campbell-Wood whether the increased supply would put pressure on the growth momentum of these asset prices.
1: So in terms of are we seeing overbuilding uh, and our landlords losing pricing power, we aren't seeing that yet in most markets. Yeah, so the big markets of North America, the UK, but there are markets where that is occurring. So yeah, you need to look through the aggregate levels, but it's smaller markets in in Europe, like Poland, for example, or select markets in the US. But by and large, landlords still have pricing power. And if you look at Prologis, who reported results and it's the largest position in the portfolio, they're still seeing accelerating rent growth and pricing power. And it's not just the e-commerce story, but the pandemic has actually driven their customers to increase inventory levels and some of that redundancy that they're they're keeping onshore given the disruption you've had in supply chains. So the pricing power is still there, but you're right, it's not an undiscovered story. So yes, we do need to put mindful evaluation. We did trim some exposure there, as we we saw in terms of the rotation into some of the more cyclical impacted areas. But we still see you know, some relative appeal in these in these vehicles, and we think the underlying trends are sufficient to justify the values where they're currently trading.
0: The world now revolves around data. We need microchips to process so many tasks via a multitude of products on a daily basis. Ian Beattie shares what four stocks every investor needs to have a view on.
2: It's all about hardware now. You know, really is very important. This is, we're all connected. We're all shackled at all times to one another and to data and to some data center. That is our lives now, all of us. And to do that, you need a lot more chips. And it's TSMC, ARM, and NVIDIA, and ASML. Those are the four companies I think every investor needs to have a view on. That's the center of our lives at the moment, those four companies. So we're also gonna consume a lot of chips made by other people like uh, Samsung and SK Hynix. But those four are doing something clever in this new global, globally connected world. So you've got two US, one European, and one Asian company in that, and they're very, very important to our lives there.
0: With the tremendous levels of fiscal spending on the horizon and the Fed continuing to emphasize their support for the U.S. economy with accommodative monetary policy, will this translate into inflation? We asked Tony Cousins to enlighten us.
2: The inflationary fears have clearly risen. The U.S. has got on with its vaccination campaign and is clearly seeing a recovery and The Biden administration is using its political advantage, current political advantage in Congress to drive through very large stimulus programs. We have seen the 1.1 trillion bill already passed, which is largely distributing government money to individuals and giving additional relief packages. This is 9% of GDP. This is huge. And they are following this up with a infrastructure bill which is currently targeted over two trillion so that's about 18 percent of uh, GDP that is gargantuan now if you stimulate an economy which is already recovering to that extent then you are going to build inflationary pressures those who have accumulated a lot of debt will use the money to pay that down but others because they haven't had the opportunity to spend will use it to, to spend and clearly In infrastructure, that is uh, government money that's not going to go through individual wallets. So that is going to get spent as well. So I think there is concern going forward about rising inflationary pressures. The Fed have said that if uh, rising inflation is seen, they will allow the economy to run hot and not tighten as they've done in, in previous cycles while the recovery gets firmly established. And the The risk is that inflation keeps on rising. This is at a time when bond yields remain very low. Bond yields have gone up about 70 basis points in the US, but they are still negative in in real terms, or or just marginally below zero in real terms, as they are throughout the world. And that presents huge risks for bondholders.
0: Equity markets are at all-time highs and encroaching bubble territory. With these risks, is now the time for investors to phase into the global equity markets? Andy Hedley gives his view on how to proceed.
3: So I think we're actually at a phase in the market at the moment that that is quite dangerous in certain aspects. What I mean by that really is a lot of companies that, as you've seen, are loss-making, coming to market, we're seeing SPACs, we're seeing a huge amount of speculative behavior. And we think that actually what that's doing is people are ignoring these companies that are long-term compounders. Now, if there is a market decline, and a market decline is likely to arise because of a fear of inflation coming through and, and people worrying that the policymakers like the Fed are behind the curve. So if this fear of inflation comes through, we get bond yields rising further than they have already. That would have a, an impact on, as I say, all asset prices. Now, in that environment, and we can certainly envisage that, then those high-risk companies would fall substantially. I think that the, the sort of low-volatility companies we own would hold up very well, but valuations across the board are quite high, Neil. So so we always recommend to people that what they should do is basically uh, invest over a long period of time so that you basically wait your entry into the market. There are times when markets fall substantially, like March last year, where, where you can put a huge amount of money to work, uh, as we did during that decline. But, but actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that now is a particularly great time to invest everything. But I, if I was, as I do, so with my money, I, I invest on a kind of continual basis. So I'm constantly putting money into the market so that I, I average out over the period. And, and that's what I think is the right thing to do now. I think, I think uh, Howard Marks puts it best where he says, proceed, but with caution. Okay, Because asset values and, and interest rates are very low, asset values are high, but it can persist for a long time. So I don't think people should stay out of the market. So I think you do proceed, but I think you proceed with caution.
0: Construction companies are usually risky investments. Jeremy Lang explains how during the pandemic, an interesting construction firm surfaced on these streams that could benefit as governments embark on ambitious infrastructure spending programs.
4: So there were a few areas I think which which jumped up up after this. We got particularly interested in businesses tied to the construction cycle uh, for reasons again I'll come on to in a moment, but construction is a kind of slightly tricky business. There, there, There are quite a few ways of involved in construction where the business models are not that great you know if you make a mistake it can it can cause you problems if you're a building contractor for example if you miss on a project it's a bit tough but there are a few businesses which if you like they benefit when there's a recovery going on in that area but their business models are just a bit safer and more robust and united rentals is a kind of good example of that what it does sounds quite simple because it kind of is in one sense is it just rents out and maintains really big bits of kit basically bits of machinery that you can move around, like diggers and uh, bulldozers and things like that, and all the kind of tools that go with that, which are mainly used in construction. But the reason why it's kind of a bit of an unusual business is partly kind of the landscape that it operates in. That industry kind of started with lots and lots of small kind of localized players. You just had a bunch of kit and they kind of rented it out and they benefited from construction companies just wanting to uh, reduce the amount of money tied up in the kit while it was sitting idle. But as that sort of acceptance of not having to own your own kit became more prevalent, two big kind of national players emerged in the US. And in fact, we bought both of them. One's United Rentals, the other one's Ashtead. And they now make up about 30% of that market. Now, they've been able, kind of as they've got bigger, you know, they're now they've what they do is instead of it just being like a bit of kit, they kind of manage fleets of kit and the, how you maintain them and how you manage them and the services you add on to them just makes that kind of more interesting and lower risk business. Whilst at the same time, they can still kind of grow by just picking off the, the smaller players that are still out there that can't do the sorts of things that they do. So that that's why the kind of business model kind of makes sense. And then within that, the guys that run those two businesses have, uh, have shown in the good times that they've been, they've been to quite through quite a few booms and busts. So they've honed, if you like, the way they run those businesses. So you can see in the good times that they're still quite careful about the way they try and grow. And you can see that pattern before the pandemic hit. So that's the kind of, why the CEO behavior kind of makes sense. But then why they're interesting as well in this context is that our sense is that you know construction, like everything got kind of hammered in the pandemic. But when we look at the path of recovery out of this pandemic, it looks to us like it's gonna be more of a, like a construction heavy kind of recovery which is very different to the last big crisis we had in 2008-09, where a lot of the problems were kind of tied to construction. So, so construction is very slow to come out of that one. This time it looks a bit different because each cycle is a bit different. And it's partly to do with the way we're coming out of this cycle where a lot of government stimulus kind of directed at a lot of kind of construction heavy industries. So that just makes it easier, I think, for you to then deliver your recovery plan with all that sort of help.
0: You can listen to or read more about all the fund manager workshops at netgroupinvestments.com or through our podcast channels on all major platforms. This has been your Netgroup Investments quarterly highlights. Make sure to check back at the end of July for our next edition.